I mean, we're adults, but we're all kids at heart. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Matt Stratton. I'm Jessica Kerr. So we've got a really fun and interesting, and one might even say chaotic, show (laughs) for you today. Although we have an upcoming episode that's going to be even more chaotic, but (laughs) another story. (laughs) But first, a word from the sponsors. The worst thing about the Arrested DevOps podcast is when it ends. You're left wondering what to do next. What are you going to listen to on your commute home? How do you occupy your time when walking the dog? What are you going to listen to during the quarterly all-hands meeting? But fear not, dear listener, there is a solution. You need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon Wichard, will keep you up to date on all things cloud while offering tips on how to optimize your Costco haul and how to PowerPoint. It's a fun, free-flowing conversation that will keep you entertained and informed. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. So like I said, we're going into the realm of chaos today, but not necessarily the chaos you might be thinking of. We're going to put a little bit of a spin on it. And joining us today is Aaron Reinhardt. Aaron, uh, welcome back to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a couple of years. Um, I, my name is Aaron Reinhardt. I am the CTO and co-founder of a company called Verica. Uh, Verica, uh, my, uh, so I co-founded Verica with Casey Rosenthal, the creator of Chaos Engineering at Netflix. Uh, and we are bringing a, a series of tools to market that, um, that combine what Netflix did with Chaos Engineering as well as uh, what I did with Security Chaos Engineering at United Health Group. Uh, and yeah, we're early, early stage startup, uh, in stealth, stealth, stealthy phase. So we had Aaron on the show a few years ago, uh, talking about, it was really about that the show was about taking, uh, a, a, an enterprise project internally and making it open source, but that project was related to security chaos engineering and things have kind of changed, but can you kind of level set? We talk about chaos engineering a lot. Um, but what, what is security chaos engineering so much, right? So, yeah, so, it's, you know, it's actually quite interesting is that, like, you know, this whole thing started with, like, uh, us hiring our first SRE. Uh, so, at United Health Group, I was the chief security architect for the company, uh, and I was part of the DevOps transformation. I remember at the beginning, I, I didn't even know what DevOps was. When I, was. I was a software engineer for over 10 years in my career, but I, I really didn't do Agile. We didn't do, like, we hadn't done, we, I mean, I was still at NASA when I was doing that. And NASA, at the time, we just, we just weren't really using those techniques. Uh, very much a waterfall uh, mentality, but like uh, so. Anyway, I get to so uh, I get to United, and I start um, you know really trying to because uh, I could empathize with software engineers. We started you know uh, you know learning about this DevOps thing, and I started listening to the pain, and uh, so we ended up leading this. So I ended up sort of kicking off this um, DevOps transformation, and as a result of that, we uh, we hired our first SRE, Patrick Bergstrom. He was at BestBuy.com, and they said, hey. You're the, are you one of our DevOps guys? You should meet this SRE guy. You know, I think you guys would get along. So the first day on the job, they put us together. We started talking. He started talking about what is SRE. 
you know, I actually worked in reliability engineering at NASA, so my understanding of SRE was completely different. Uh, but actually, a lot of the concepts that come from Google's SRE come from like things like NASA uh, and resilience engineering and things like that. Um, but uh, you know, but he started talking about this chaos engineering thing, how they would proactively break parts of their system, and um, and I just kind of blew my mind. And I remember that night, I just woke up in the middle of the night, and like, I was like, man, why does this make sense to me? Like, really? Because like, it's because I was an engineer most of my career, and like, like it's um. I've never seen like the system and its security as different things. It's either a system is secure or it's not, right? It's like safety, reliability, resilience, uh, quality. They're all human constructs, right? It takes humans to create them, right? So it's like, and um, so we, uh, we decided, hey, let's see if we can apply this thing, this concept of what Chaos Monkey does. Because that's where a lot of your engineering efforts begin with Chaos Engineering is like you look at Chaos Monkey, you know, uh, and so we looked at the code uh, and we decided, hey, I think control validation makes a lot of sense to us is that we, we build all these security measures into our systems, particularly we're thinking of the cloud at the time at United. Uh, and we we're thinking about like, you know, so we design with the state in mind of like how we think the security is going to work. But we really have a mechanism for continuously verifying that, yes, it does actually function the way we intended it to. So and at the time, I was also struggling as the chief security architect is I would have a data architect or the solutions architect come to me with different diagrams of the same system. Now, it's not that neither one of them understood the system. It's that they had different mental models of what they believe the system to be. Uh, and diagrams are never actually an accurate reflection of the system. And so it was like what I needed was is I needed a way that was not subjective to ask the computer a question. Does the firewall fire when this condition occurs? Does the configuration management system catch these misconfigurations or, or violations of policy or policy rules? Like I, I wouldn't ask the computer those questions. And the, the idea of a hypothesis in chaos engineering made a lot of sense. You know, it wasn't until later on that we started applying it to like instant response, uh, you know, started seeing the compliance value of it. Uh, but uh, that, I'll leave it there. That's kind of like where it starts. But really, Matt, it's the same thing all that like the SRE community has been talking about for years. It's just being applied to security, uh, another part of the system. You said chaos engineering is proactively breaking parts of the system. I like that. And you also said that what's important here is that you can ask a question. You can form a hypothesis. You can state how you expect the system to work in some non-optimal condition. And then you can ask that question of the real system. Precisely. Like, so, I mean, I kind of branching off to my own definition of chaos engineering. I'm not trying. I still believe in Netflix's definition. I still think that's a fine definition. I like to explain it to people as, a proactive methodology for uh, for understanding the inherent failure within a system uh, before it actually manifests in the pain. And it could be customer pain. It could be engineering pain. It could be, you know, that's what outages and incidents really are. A lot of security incidents end up becoming outages because um, you got to take the service offline to fix the security problem or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, in, in terms of forming a question, so a lot of the, maybe the difference, Matt uh, and Jessica, where you guys are coming from uh, for security is they're really not like latency focused uh, or because really that's like when you're, um, you know, when you're, uh, when you're bringing down a VM or you're, or you're, um, or you're filling up memory or doing those kind of things, all that really does is manifest into making the service slow. And you are, can really. Are those examples oh. of what Chaos Monkey does? Because you mentioned Chaos Monkey, but not everybody sure. knows what that is. Uh, so Chaos Monkey began as part of Netflix's 
cloud transformation. So many people out there I'll talk to about chaos engineering, like, oh, we can't even do the DevOps. We're not even doing CI. It's like we can't like we can't do chaos engineering. It's so advanced. Well, really, Netflix wasn't quite really there either when they started. They decided to, to, to go from DVDs in the mail to a streaming service. And that, this was 12 years ago, in 2008. And so uh, what was happening at the time is in Amazon, uh, AMIs were just disappearing. It was like a feature of AWS at the time. So Netflix had... They, right, uh, Adrian Cockcroft's gonna uh, launch a stack. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna love that one. Um, no, but that's what was happening. And Adrian, I was actually at Netflix at the time, I believe. Uh, and um, what well, what was happening was is that Netflix had no chief architect. They had no ability to mandate thou shalt not do, thou shalt do this, use this tool. You know, um, the whole paved road versus the dirt road concepts, right? Uh, and but uh, what, what was happening is these AMIs were disappearing, causing, causing the service out, there to be an outage on services. So what Netflix did is say, okay, we're going we're gonna to design, design our services to be resilient to these particular problems. Uh, and so they, they ended up building Chaos Monkey. Chaos Monkey would, during business hours, sort of randomly pick up an AMI, an AMI. I like to say AMI. That's my new I love how people pronounce AMI. Uh, it's just I'm, bore, I'm boring. Um, and, uh, uh, but like it would sort of randomly bring one down. What that did actually though, what a lot of people don't realize it's not just creating chaos. Like what it does is it puts a well-defined problem in front of an engineer. It turns out when you put a well-defined problem in front of an engineer, they solve it. Oh, right? and- so like, so like works on my machine is now like, but does this work on your machine right. when this AMI goes down, suddenly it's reproducible. Right. Yeah. And like, I think there's a, there's a level set thing to do because there's definitely been an evolution, right? So when you think about the, the, the beginnings of chaos with chaos monkey, we're um, very much just like, we're going to, we're going to kill an instance. And, 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 and a lot of the way that people kind of reason about chaos engineering and the way that they understand that is this teaches software engineers, they have to code defensively because they can't trust anything. Um, the reality is you can't trust in the first place. I think one of the the things to think about, though, is that it's fundamentally at the end of the day, what we're doing with chaos is we're testing a hypothesis. And our hypothesis is that if this thing happens, everything will be fine. Because if your hypothesis is if we do this thing, everything's going to go to shit. You don't need don't don't test that. Right. Like, like you, you, you're actually trying to prove a positive. Right. Yep. And so there's a, you, you mentioned the Aaron, you know, the Netflix definition. And so I, I, I went and pulled from one of my slides. The one that I like to use from Netflix is from their tech blog now nine years ago, but it says, you know, by running chaos monkey in the middle of a business day in a carefully monitored environment with engineers standing by to address any problems, we can learn lessons about the weakness, et cetera, et cetera. And the things that are important about that is that it's the carefully monitored environment. Engineer, you know, this is not, a lot of times people think that like the point of chaos is like to keep the software engineers on their toes. Absolutely not. Like everyone, and when you look at like how these patterns go, everybody knows this experiment is happening. And as soon as things look squirrely, it's done, right? Like you're watching your key business metric. And if that starts to go south, Pull the plug on the experiment because you just disproved your hypothesis that everything was probably fine. So it's it's these ideas, and, and Jessica, you you kind of said this a little bit earlier, and that's why I wanted to bring it back. Is you said it's 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 an experiment, and you're testing this hypothesis. So if I'm if I'm reasoning about the security chaos engineering, it's that we can have not hypothesis just about the reliability of the infrastructure, 
right? Like, so, you know, common, common chaos experiment is that this API I have to consume is unavailable, right? Like, and I assume that if I, if I'm supposed to query, you know, this PayPal API and it goes down that my stuff won't fall over. So I'm going to test that. Right. So, so what I, what I'm curious to understand, cause I've thought about automated compliance and things like that. So how are you, what does an experiment look like in security chaos testing? Sure. Um, so really, so the premise and the notions and the techniques are, are fundamentally the same. What's different, you're right, is are the actual experiment, things we're experimenting. And a majority of the experiments are focused on accidents and mistakes, right? And, and that's really the root. I like to call that the low-hanging fruit, really. So if you look at a lot of malicious code, you look at a lot of like your data breaches and malicious code as a result of it, it's crap code. Most of it's just horrible software. But it's taking it look there's usually some step if you read through like you know an analysis of the steps of, of the code, it's usually it's looking for some kind of low-hanging fruit to exploit, right? It could be a permissive account, it could be that you had uh, one, two, three, four is your password, it could be that you had um, you know a, a, a ports open that shouldn't have been opened, uh, or somebody had more access than they should have. It's um what we're doing with chaos engineering for security is we're proactively, we, we, we have this assumption. We built this, we have this firewall in place. We have this configuration management thing in place to proactively catch these things when these events occur. It's our assumption that we believe when these conditions occur that we can catch them. But what is happening because of the nature of the speed, scale, and complexity of modern software it's very easy to miss a misconfiguration when you have 600 AWS accounts and you have two, 200 services, right? And they all have different IAM conflicting uh, cloud formation. Uh, you know, some of the like IAM is a good example of like just how complexity it's inherent in every AWS service. But it's like, what is it? Oh, AWS IAM. Uh, it's their, it's their, um, uh, uh, what is it? Is Identity it? and access right. management. Yeah, thank you. That thank one. you. Identity access management. I, I was really just sort of framing that up just because I know a lot of people have problems with the uh, keeping the security in alignment with the change of pace uh, of how we're delivering modern services and software. It's hard enough to under, keep a, a, an accurate understanding of how the system is operating at any given point, let alone its security. And so it's... Um, so what we're trying to do is we're proactively introducing these mistakes, accidents, mostly misconfigurations, to try to determine and build confidence that, hey, when these kind of things happen, when our engineers trying to ch- change the world for whatever we do as a company are trying to uh, make improvements, that we can catch these mistakes and accidents that happen along the way. Uh, and um, that's really what we're trying to do. And it, it really um, it helps really build confidence that, the security, all that money we're spending. A lot of times, so my in my past experience with cloud transformations in particular, is that companies are they usually have unrealistic expectations on timing, resources, costs, uh, whether or not the people have the right skills. I find chaos engineering to be a great tool to say, hey, does the system work the way we built it to work? on a regular basis by ask constantly, like you said, Jessica, asking the computer the questions, but it helps you reinforce like, hey, I may have not had known been an expert on how to build this, but over time I'm I'm validating or I'm verifying or continuously verifying that hey, what I'm building is actually working or it's not. And when it's not, that context informs us of how to do it right, if that makes sense. I think you're saying that engineers aren't perfect. 
Stop asking them to be perfect. That's ridiculous. Notice it when they're not and let them learn from it. Oh my gosh. I, I, that could, I don't think that could be said better. Could it, Matt? I mean, uh, that's, that's the truth. I mean, I am, I am also another passionate thing I'm trying to change, Jessica, is how we at security. My, my, so I'm currently writing the O'Reilly book on security chaos engineering. First edition comes out uh, midsummer. I'm writing with Kelly Shortridge. Kelly Shortridge, you guys are, uh, don't know her well. She, she, uh, she talks a lot on resilience engineering and security and human factors and safety engineering, cognitive sciences, you know, um, and we, uh, we're trying to change the way people think about the blame, name, shame game, right? Because, I mean, incidents are not a good opportunities to learn. And a lot of times we're just running around. I mean, it's people freak out, you know, especially oh, like emotionally. This is not the time of psychological yes. safety for it, learning. During the incident is not when the learning occurs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's like, you know, um, I love, so I'm, I'm just, if you guys ever see my material, I'm just a huge fan of Don Osbob. Bob. Sure you guys are too. It's just, he just has brought so much to the craft from those other, these other domains. But like, you know, all these things you all have been talking about in SRE in uh, um, in chaos engineering apply to security people too. We're just we're we there's just a gap in in our understanding of how it applies to us, and that's really what Kelly and I are trying to uh, trying to bring to the craft. Is that like you know um, we can be proactive, and that is because no matter how much money you spend. No matter how many people you have, security people or whatever, or how many tools you have, or like you still don't know if you're prepared for an event, right? In security, we rarely look at cascading failure. We typically, uh, you know, hope we can catch an event uh, when it happens. Uh, but like what we can do with chaos engineering is we proactively present the computer system and the, and the humans that are responsible for keeping it resilient with, with the signal say, so, Hey, you know, when this kind of thing occurs, how can we actually catch it? Do we, did we have the right logging? This is a big one for software security is that there is no software security logging anywhere. I have not seen anyone solve this problem. Uh, it's a very difficult problem. There are three layers of logic you have to write. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Is that because it, in security logging, you're, you're asking, uh, what happened? You're asking me here about everything that happened that you didn't expect. It's it's um, it's. Uh, I guess what would be the problem? Well, what the the problem is? Well, uh, it's that we we got really overly dependent upon like physical appliances, virtual appliances, like things that were static. Uh, things that were like static pieces of infrastructure. Like we got, we have standard logging formats. Those, those, those logging formats rarely change, but like what we haven't really evolved well is the nature of the custom nature of software events uh, in security. And what I mean by that is how do you know something failed, right? You only know through footsteps in the sand. That's what John, like Donald likes to say. It's like, you know, through stack traces, you know, through other tracing types of technology, observable events, like, you know, log events. And I love the observability movement. A lot of people think that's hype. I think that's complete. I think that's, it's completely a huge thing and a big problem. Totally. That, like, I think people who think it's hype don't really understand the nature of the problem. Is that uh, how, do you, how do you have a software? Where does a software logging event come from? A software engineer must write it. Right. Uh, you know, and another thing that perturbs me is that like, you know, if um, I don't want to say it perturbs me, it's just that, like it's um, uh, uh, is that log events, if they don't make sense to a human. Right. Like, is that really adding value? Because, I mean, that's what log events are in alerts and things are for is to say, hey, human, 
this computer system that you think is working is not working the way you think it is. Like it's supposed to, it's, we're supposed to be able to understand what uh, observability means, understanding how your computer works internally through its external outputs. Uh, and like, um, anyway, I, I guess what I'm saying is that during an incident, uh, coming back to where I was with the chaos stuff is during an incident, we're not, we're not actively looking at the quality of our log data, right? Or we're, we're just hoping we had the right log data or we had enough to piece together maybe what happened. Uh, and we rarely, uh, this is another big trigger word, you know, in the spaces, we never, security people still believe in root cause. Uh, and that's a huge thing we have mm-hmm. to change, you know, is that root cause is, is a fallacy. It really is. It, oh, yeah. It's, you know, um, anyway. Some so factors contribute more oh. than others, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's. <laughs> there are many necessary conditions, any yeah. one of which you could assign root cause if you right. wanted to. Um, so your audience in your book is security people? It's, um, so we read it up. Uh, we've been writing it mostly in the audience of like SREs, operations mm-hmm. folks, security people, software security uh, I I have given my talk uh, talks and material, and I've written. I, I I pride myself as an engineer, as a builder. If you, I remember Gene Kim, or it was a Gene or Jez Humble. Somebody put out there, like on Twitter, like what persona, dev or ops, yep. uh, do you prescribe to? I pride myself as a builder. I, I like building things, figuring out problems, and things like that. Um, uh, where was I going with that? Uh, I had a. <laughs> Uh, hey, your audience so, is SREs. And- right. oh, yeah. audience. That was my, my, my thing is like, are you, is this for security professionals who need to understand chaos or is this for people that understand chaos, but need to know how to extend that into security? Right. Like that's, that's kind of, I was thinking the same thing, Jessica, when I was like, yeah, who are, cause those are two different yeah. kinds of audiences and it would be incredibly hard. And if you're going to tell me you're trying to write it for both of them, kudos to you because Wow, that seems hard. <laughs> well, I'm trying to I'm trying to bridge bridge it. Like yeah. I think the audience is mostly security people trying to bring them towards the center, uh, bring them towards the the, the software engineering community, of the SRE community. I would say, you know, it's also trying to make sense of like where the problems are for security people to the SRE community. So I would say yeah. maybe it's probably 70-30, mostly mm-hmm. security people. You know, uh, there are a lot of people out there that are like Kelly and I that were engineers like before we got into security. So we kind of understand these problems a little quicker. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that would be the audience. I'm a little puzzled by how do you be a security person without being an engineer? Wow. Uh, you guys are notorious for asking great questions. Uh, <laughs> you know, but that's that's like, so this is how I see the world. I'm going to get really opinionated. We're engineers, right? So right. we're opinionated. Yes, we uh, love opinions. Well, yeah. it's... Um, I. It's always kind of been an engineering problem, is it not? Right? I mean, like, it evolved over the past 10 years. I mean, like, what was happening is, is that we were, were, like, we were building systems and we were creating these opportunities for people to exploit them. Uh, people were doing it. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in certain industries wanted to, um, um, wanted to pre- prevent, prevent fraud because this whole computer fraud era came around where people were, bank- there's banking fraud with the banking computers and, and, uh, uh, you know, so we took these concepts of like compliance, the word controls comes from accounting, uh, the orange book in the government kind of got out of its, uh, um, that was sort of the first book of compliance and the orange uh, book, the orange book. Yeah. It's so it's like the eighties, but it's like, uh, this is the time of like, when was the Morris worm? I can't remember. But anyway, like I don't have my, yeah, maybe, yeah, it's, it's like, 
you know, but, but it's a, what is it, a set of published government controls around security is the quote unquote yeah, lunch book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it's, um, uh, but it's like, we kind of evolved in this like, you know, era of, of computer of security people knowing about knowing all the NIST special publications and what the PCI standards and not, but not knowing how they actually get applied or actually how to build it. You know, that was, I think that's what accelerated in my career. And a lot of people I know that have done really well in security were engineers for the, most of their career. And then they learned the security stuff. And I think that's really helped me uh, really empathize with engineers is kind of, I, I get it. Like, and that's as an architect, I'm a big believer you can't really be a really effective architect unless you have built a lot of things. Because like as an architect, you got to understand the world is made up of puzzle pieces, right? The pieces can be moved. There's, there's only so many types of pieces. Like with queuing technology, there's there's a couple different kinds of queues, uh, and then there's streaming and Kafka, right? And, and, then, and then there's every bad implementation of any of those kinds yes. of queues. So I, I, exactly. I, I, I was thinking, you know, back to your question, you know, about how can you do... S- infosec and not be an engineer and Aaron started to touch on this a little bit is because there's kind of because security is a business and a technology problem right and so it kind of depends on how you come into it so a lot of and I'm thinking just back through my career and I worked in a lot of insurance and a lot of finance because that's where you work in IT in Chicago and I think about in the, the the 90s and the early 2000s a lot of the security folks I worked with they were definitely control oriented and I don't mean command and control but like as in controls defined controls that derived from business requirement but were very much driven down from non-technical controls right so so I think you come into infosec in one of two ways either you come from the business risk mitigation understanding side and then say now I'm going to expand my my domain of understanding to include this technology. And if you think about how that evolution was happening in the nineties and the early two thousands, that's exactly what was happening because it was like, we have this whole history of an industry and a practice and a domain that's around uh, security controls that are very physical, that are very much about paper and about what humans are doing and things like that. And then what ends up happening is they're like, okay, guess, you know, security or actually probably don't even call them at that point. They weren't called security professionals. They were risk professionals, risk folks. You need to also take this tech stuff under your domain, but then you, or you have the, I'm coming like what Aaron's saying, I'm coming from the engineering side and I'm, I'm expanding my bubble to now take on the business problem of risk and, and security. So I, I think it, that's where it depends on where you come from it. And I think we're seeing more today and in the last decade of security folks that come from the engineering, you know, as opposed to the other way, because if you think about where it even started, that's the only place it could have come from was, was risk management, right? Like, cause software engineers in the nineties, they didn't have the knowledge, right. Or nor was it even really cause security then wasn't a software problem. Right. You know, I mean, it was very easy to solve. I mean, what security is the the software security issues, but most of the security and most of the risk was around um, business process. Right. I think, you know, it was systems were not connected to the internet. You know, the the risk profile from a technology standpoint was much. Sorry. And I I, I sort of want to like go back another thing that I thought about when it comes to that, when you're talking about the challenge of like security logging, as we're moving into like a zero trust thought, because as a software engineer, I used to be able to just sort of go, hey, it's cool because I know my enterprise software is behind the firewall. It's totally good. I don't have to worry about that because my good pals in InfoSec have built a nice perimeter for me. So I'm okay. Because at one point, security meant 
fences. It meant walls. It meant scanning your badge when you enter the building. Yeah. And then that's why we built systems the way that we did, where we built perimeters around them. And that that was okay for a while because these systems didn't have... I mean, it doesn't even have to talk to the internet. There was, it, was, it was very easy to say, like, of course my data center can't talk to the internet because why ever would it need to? But then when, as we flip that script and we think about how people are working differently and moving, I think that zero trust model is what's driving security, whether you're talking about shifting it left or driving it further up the stack, right? I used to just not have to deal with it because I had somebody else could do it and it was okay because I could build a fence. You can't build a fence anymore. So now I have to lock my door, right? You know, I have to, you know, not, not post my mother's maiden name on Facebook or whatever, whatever metaphor that I'm messing up for sure. Well, it's also like, you know, uh, so James Wicket and I have been kind of attacking some of this too. Like James is, um, uh, you guys all know James, um, but like we've been uh, trying to, trying to move the thinking and security to value chain and DevOps has really been a, a, I think a major accelerant to, to getting security people thinking more about value and where that comes from. Like, you know, are you like, if you think about it from the CISO all the way down to a security organization, a lot of those people, people in that organization, so we created the CISO role to create accountability for security to company. CISO stands for chief information security officer, right? Um, this CISO and the organization of security people can't actually do a whole lot to affect security. They need an engineer to actually do the actual application of the configuration or implement the control or, um, or to give them an accurate understanding of how the system works to ensure that it is compliant. And what I like, I, uh, I think partly that process has moved us away from the engineering, but the, the, the DevOps has brought us back think, to thinking about like, you know, I, I remember when I first went to United Health Group, um, I was sort of a consultant. I was helping them with their first startup. Uh, they launched a startup called Harkin Health. Uh, and I was part of working on building this, this, this total distributed, uh, immutable, ephemeral kind of construct that we built with uh, Terraform and AWS, something like, something like this United had never seen before. And we built like the ability to spin up instances and scan them with Nessus and spin them down. And, and like we just... Um, I guess my point was, is I was directly a part of using what my knowledge in security and engineering to enhance the value of the products and services that company was delivering. Uh, and it, I was so proud when the company went live. It's like, I, hey, I did that. I was a part of that, right? Security people don't, are, often we're not in the value chain. And like, so we don't, like, we don't feel that sense of pride like that, that, that glowing feeling when like, Hey, I, I helped build that. You know, do you like that feature? Yeah. Right. You usually just feel nervous. Oh my God, it's in production. What did they screw up? Well, and even more so it's like the way I've always felt <laughs> from ops is I'm like being an ops and I would extend it to InfoSec is the same, the same thing. I said, it's like being a corporate lawyer. Nobody know if you're the lawyer for the company, nobody knows all the times you kept the company from being sued. They only know when yeah. you missed it and you got sued. And the same thing is true with ops. Right. And then, and then likewise security, all, well, all people know about security is number one, every time they say no to them and when they mess up, quote unquote, mess up, I'm using that in air quotes, audio people, you know, and, and there's a breach, then all of a sudden everybody knows. So it's a, it's a very, um, and it's, <clears throat> and where that comes in is exactly what Aaron said. It's because those roles in security and ops are not in the value chain, you know, but the reality is they super duper are. Because security 
and reliability are aspects of quality and they provide, like I always tell product owners, I'm like, your, com- your customers are not going to come and tell you in an interview that they want a security feature, so to speak. I mean, feature like that they know, but the feature of being secure. They don't ask for that. They ask for the hunter green button, right? But they aren't asked, but they're asking for it in different ways, right? So those are all the hunter green button, but only for me, not for just anybody who decides they want access to my data. Oh, definitely. No, and and Sorry, uh, th- th- no, and that's where like um, you know uh, I'm just gonna I guess I'll end this sort of tangent. I'll, like I'm just very passionate about this stuff, guys. So it's like uh, is that uh, that's where I was coming from. One of the things I I did a lot of weird things at United. I guess I kind of I made these little side projects. They're somewhat successful. Uh, they ended up leading to some transformational efforts. But like they, I got a little leeway to do interesting things. Like uh, I gave a talk at DevOps Enterprise Summit a couple years ago on how to train your dragons, the code. Uh, it was like just a, a catchy title for how I trained over a thousand people at United health group in security, whether you're an engineer or not to learn Python. Luckily I had a management chain that liked my crazy ideas. So what I was trying to do was I was trying to, uh, you know, one, I wasn't expecting a bunch of security people to all of a sudden be software engineers. What I was trying to do is build empathy, right? Python hmm. is pretty easy to learn. I mean, empathy is a two-way road. Like when you had when you had to upgrade your Python on your MacBook and you had to go to the, the company uh, internal app store, right? And then you had to get, you had to fill out an exception, you had to wait three days to get it back, right? And then, but the security people had to go through eat their own dog food. I'm like, oh, this sucks, right? And then like you know you uh, you know, but having to write code, people are starting to understood. Like, oh, this is not that hard. The, there's a lot of fear. People have never written code before. It's actually not that complicated, right? But people fear it for some reason. And we were able to break that down. And I think we got about 15 to 20% of people of those folks actually wrote some kind of interesting scripting or coding. Uh, but we had, but what, what was really kind of cool is that like, it, it created a better understanding and empathy. But, like, but now, when, if you have an organization of employees that can code, if they wanted to, they can go from idea to a product on their own. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Like, you know, for me to be able to build something that demonstrates my idea of how I want to contribute value back. And that gets to be more value chain oriented thinking. And that's why. Oh, no, I I just thought that was cool. You, you um, showed them that they could deliver this particular kind of software created value if they wanted. And then they can think about that. And then you have your your chaos uh, security tools that let you demonstrate the value of everything that's not happening when some condition occurs. Precisely. And like Matt said earlier, we never do an experiment we know is going to fail because, we, I mean, if we know it's going to fail, just fix it, right? Like, And um, the same thing goes with security. And I just also want to put a plug out there. Like, So this all started with Chaos Slinger. Well, uh, it was the first time on this show. Chaos. Chaos. Yeah, this is this is this open source tool that Aaron wrote at uh, at United Health Group that is called Chaos Slinger, but that was not its original name. It, I'm picturing monkeys. Uh, yeah, you can probably yeah. guess where it comes mm-hmm. from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I mean, uh, you said I could be explicit. I don't know if it's explicit, <laughs> but the the real name was poo slinger okay i it's distasteful exactly uh but like hey this was a side project i I had some of the most brilliant people in the company to say hey let's give this a shot let's see where let's show the company what we let's show the world and the company what we can do right so we really thought so yeah so if we're going to create a chaos 
engineering. That's what those monkeys are thinking too. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, well, what happened was is like we're going to create uh, all these chaos tools are kind of monkeys like, and uh, so we're thinking what you know what do monkeys throw? You know, it, it became it became Pusslinger. The original set of experiments was the fecal roster. Uh, I mean, we. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, we used Fodoc at the time. So, like, the Fodoc channel was, uh, was a poo flow or something. It was just, it, I mean, we're adults, but we're all kids at heart. Yeah. But here's what it made the project, this is what I told Matt last time on the show, is it just made the project fun, made entertaining. It's tough when you're asking people to go above and beyond their jobs to, you know, and it, it, it ended up making a very successful project. And it would end up being not only the first ever application of Netflix's chaos engineering to security, but also it ended up being the first open source tool for United Health Group. Uh, and I remember when, when that Friday we were all in our jammies late at night and we, we did, I did the commit to, to GitHub uh, and um, uh, we released it on, on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn and it got such a following that, that, that tweet that like it triggered uh, brand watch at the company. Uh, and meaning uh, we're number two for all of United Health Groups. Brandwatch is like a, a tool that uh, monitors the brand on social media brand, and the internet. Brandwatch. Yeah, Brandwatch. Yeah. And, and like, I remember the marketing people coming to me like, what is this github thing? Like, and, and like, cause it, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was sort of a very transformational effort, but like, I can explain a little bit what Chaos Slinger does if anyone's interested in understanding kind of how a, the uh, anatomy of a chaos experiment if that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, cause I think that's the thing I'm still trying to I still want to like kind of reason about like what a security chaos experiment looks like. And, 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 and then I, I, I do want to kind of get a feel for what this, I almost said what this transformation looks like. You can tell what I've been doing in my job lately, but making this change, right. Cause we're asking people to change how they work and, and, and how, you know, what are some of the, the factors come into that, but I think it'll help to understand what we're asking them to do. So like kind of reasoning about, what a security chaos experiment looks like using like chaos slinger. Sure. So in chaos slinger, we had a series of experiments. We had, so it was an internal repo, uh, it's a GitHub repo and an external one. But w- when we launched, we wanted it to be like a com- community effort. So we wanted people to be able to immediately understand kind of the, what we were trying to do and how uh, we would need an example experiment that everyone could understand. The main example experiment, we figured no matter if you're a software engineer, you're a security engineer, um, or even an executive or an ops person, you kind of know what a firewall is. Most people kind of know what it is. You may not understand flow, things like firewall flow and how firewalls actually function. Uh, it's a little more complicated than intuitive uh, to understand. But like what we expected was, so our experiment was, hey, uh, for some reason, unauthorized and misconfigured port changes keep happening all the time, whether it's inside the, com- inside the data center or it's in the cloud, they keep happening. Uh, and it's for a number of reasons. It could be that somebody filled out a ticket wrong. It could be that somebody didn't understand flow. It could be that somebody uh, uh, actually applied the change incorrectly. Um, it could be they applied it on the wrong target. There are lots of different reasons why. Mistakes, accidents. Especially when you're doing them at speed and scale, it's easy to make those mistakes. And so what we did was, is Castlinger would, would, if Castlinger had an opt-in and opt-out tag, a lot of your open source chaos tools have an opt-in or opt-out because you may not want to do chaos engineering on certain instances uh, you may not want to inject failure because you're injecting failure conditions. Uh, but we believed that because um, uh, United Health Group is very confident about firewalls. We believed that if we proactively introduce a misconfigured port by opening an unauthorized port, uh, uh, that we would immediately detect and block it with a firewall and be a non-issue. Uh, security people, that was the assumption we were definitely operating on. That's something that we would 
uh, we, that, that would keep us up at night if that was the case, right? So what we, um, what we did was we proactively introduced that condition into our AWS security groups. And what happened, what happened was very interesting is that only about 60% of the time did the firewall actually detect the blockage. And uh, it was actually a configuration drift issue between our non-commercial and our commercial um, AWS instances. I want to like zero in on something really quick there. So you had a hypothesis, like you had been operating on that you individually, but as a group had been operating under the assumption that this was a thing that was happening, right? You're like, Nope, it's cool. We got this auto remediation shit going on. Someone pops that port. No problem. We locked that down. And you went and you go, uh, well, uh, turns out, um, no, <laughs> right. Yeah, so you a, did disprove yeah. your hypothesis, but that's good. Like, but your hypothesis wasn't that you weren't doing it. So yeah, no, the spot on. Thanks for adding that clarity is that, um, and remember, this is not an incident. There was no outage. Nobody's freaking out. We learned proactively that the, the firewall wasn't, they wouldn't configure it appropriately. So we're able to fix that. The second thing that was really interesting is that our cloud native, our commodity uh, configuration management tool, caught it, blocked it every time. Regardless, got about every time. That was also interesting. Uh, something we really weren't paying for, kind of caught it and was doing the job. Uh, this, the next expectation, so that was the second thing we learned. The next expectation, we expected both tools to throw log event data to a log tool to correlate an event to our security operations center. They're the ones who investigate incidents and alerts and respond to them. And that actually happened. That was great. Right, but what happened was we we're very new to AWS at the time, and what happened was is that the SOC got the alert, but they couldn't ascertain which AWS account structure it came from, which instance it was, and it was because uh, well, what well, the issue was is that um, as an engineer, you're thinking I can just map back the IP address, right, and figure out where it came from, but you know, like that could take thirty minutes. If, if a minute of downtime on a system is a million dollars or even a thousand dollars, that could be expensive, uh, and you're assuming the SNAT, uh, which what's the, the point of SNAT is to intentionally hide the real IP. Uh, if that's in play, that could, it could be three hours to figure out which instance it was. Um, but the point was, is that we didn't have to incur that whole series of problems. All we learned was we just had to add pointer and metadata information to the alert, uh, and then which account, which account came from which instance. Uh, and all of these things we learned without pain, customer pain. We learned when we were, it was safe, right, to learn these things. You know, instead of quickly blaming somebody and trying to, you know, <laughs> you know uh, take that path to things. And it was really sort of a, an eye-opening experience uh, to, to sort of, that's what I'm like, oh, wow, this actually has a lot of value. Um, but like what my boss told me at the time when, um, when we released it, we started demoing it. Uh, he said, Aaron, this is, this is my boss, the CISO of United. He's like, Aaron, you know, I like how this proactively identifies these problems. What I really love about this is it keeps the incident team sharp. It keeps them, it helps them form us like, hey, we have the right tools. We have the right number of people. We have the right skills. We like the run books are actually correct at doing what they're supposed to do. Like we're to do that safely. And I'll say, wow, you're my boss for a reason, <laughs> Like, <laughs> well, you know, cause he's, he was really a bright guy and he, um, but he opened my eyes to another use case, which was instant response. It's because if you're constantly always chasing a subjective event, right? You, how is it? How can you measure event versus event with the other right skills, the time of the day, the right tools? Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I, I have a whole talk about this. Um, but it's, it's, but there, that's a huge point, which is these game days or experiment days or failure days or whatever you call them. 
you, you, you nailed it when you said, you know, cause it happened when you had everybody ready. It was known. That's a key thing that goes back to that Netflix blog from nine years ago, which was during business hours. And the reason I'd like to bring this up is because our gut tells us we should run these experiments not during the business day because they're like, that's a potential biggest impact. But when is the best time to have an outage? The best time is actually when everybody is available, right? And they're, they're, it's not the middle of the night. They're not, you're not paging people. So number one, it's, we used to talk about this at PagerDuty. We're like, there's no good time for PagerDuty to be down. So the best time is the middle of the day in San Francisco, right? That's the best time because all the engineers are in the, well, not anymore, but you know, <laughs> right? right. But they're all available there. You can bring people in, you understand, you know, what's happening. And, and the, 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 the thing about when you say about practicing incident response, so it's twofold, right? So you're able to learn, you know, gives you that practice to see if there's things you can improve. But what it also does is hopefully over time, like we have fewer incidents, which means we do this less often, which means, and especially if you're doing on-call really well and you're really sharing the load, you can go months and months and months and not participate in incident response. And what you don't want to be doing at two in the morning is trying to remember how to log into the AWS emergency console or get your PagerDuty account working or whatever kind of thing. So number one, it's giving us that reminder, but it's also when we're doing it in this quote unquote safe way, it's giving us this association that doing the mechanism of instant response is normal. You know, it's like unit tests. They give you the freedom to make a change because you're not afraid. Now, unit tests give you privacy of like your own computer. You know, <laughs> you, yeah, right. You, you know, if something's wrong before you ever have to show it to another human, um, these, uh, the, these chaos tests are giving you privacy within your company. Probably your customers never find out. You probably don't break the build. Um, and, and it, I mean, it's so, so you have to like, like each other and trust each other within your engineering group, but you get some, some safety within that as opposed to an incident of, which would be corresponding to me pushing code that breaks production and the other engineers find out. Um, it's not all your customers finding out for you. That's exactly it, though, too. It's like, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you are familiar with the cost of how much money for a budget-wise security takes up for an average cloud project. It's like for unregulated, I think for unregulated, unregulated environments, like 30% of the cost of security. For, wow. regula- for regulated, it's in the 40% percentile range. And it's like, you know, but the, here's the thing. It's like, so you're, you're, you're designing and building and implementing all these security features and functions. Do they work when they're supposed to? Right. Cause all that's in there, like all that's, uh, you know, like, you know, you're spending all that money. You should, you need a way to verify it. And that's really all we're doing. Furthermore, here's a cool thing that I've added to sort of the, beyond the security use cases to chaos engineering. Well, the things I realized that a lot of folks had picked up on was I'm like, Hmm, I'm proving whether the technology worked, whether the way I thought it did, or, or it could be thought of as the way I had it documented. Oh, wait a minute. This is an auditable artifact, Right. I, all you got to do is map this this experiment to the control it's verifying, right? And now I have free compliance, right? Like, you know? Yep. So, I mean, that's – so, America, that's also like – that's kind of – we have like three use cases. It's the availability, stability. It's the security and the compliance. And that's kind of – we're trying to bring that sort of more mature approach to the craft. Uh, yeah, you like, can look at that deliverable as value. Yeah. 
that's in your value chain because not only do you have something that you assert works, but you, you can show that it works. Well, and that's, that's, I was just going to say, because like towards the tail end of my career at Chef, I did a lot of work with Chef Compliance, which was automated. And that was my entire way of thinking about it was, I, again, like I said, I've been, for, I've worked for a lot of insurance companies, worked for a lot of financial companies. I've been through so many IT audits and they are all theater because it's all just, do you, you how does, how does a traditional audit work? They come and ask you a bunch of questions. Did you really do this thing? Yep, sure did. Sure did. Computers don't lie. Right. You know, so if my audit compliance trail is automated in that way, it's not like, hey, Jessica, did you really do this? Because and usually even when they say they have an audit trail, it's through your change control system, which is still a bunch of information that a human being typed in. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, so yeah. Treating it as an artifact. Yeah, that's making, not an audit trail. That's a blame trail. Well, right. Right. But if you're saying that did this thing actually happened, because that's what we have to do in a control, which is did this test run? Right. Sure. Did you, did you, but also most yeah, of the questions yeah, so, are being so asked in, are wrong too. That's a whole other thing, but <laughs> the you know, baby steps, baby steps. Important. But that's what I want to ask Erin ask is like, so, so at this point in the show, like, let's assume that we bought into all your bullshit, right? Yeah. You know, and like, we're like, this is good. This is great. I, I get it with this. Okay. So what makes this hard? What makes this hard when my organization is trying to, when I'm trying to make this happen, what are, what are the things that are the challenges around doing this? Because it sounds great. Like, why would not everybody be doing this? Well, what's hard is, so there, um, that's a, I love this question. Uh, there are hard things. So, like, chaos, the application of chaos engineering to security is only about, what, three and a half years old. That's when we released Chaos Linear. Like, and so there aren't a whole lot of open source tools. Chaos Linear is somewhat deprecated because I left that company. Uh, and so and they use a different version that's pipeline driven, I think internally inside of United now. Um, but the framework for chaos slingers still exists. Really, it gets three, three different, uh, three different, um, um, functions. There's generator slinger and tracker. Uh, and then there's a documentation for the experiment. All you need is it, it gives you exactly what you need in the Python inside of those AWS lambdas. Um, but so, uh, but I am hearing, so like there are a number of companies now writing their own tools or, uh, they're not, but, uh, I think one of the, one of the, the better tools that I've seen was released in Java. It wasn't really open sourced. So a lot, a lot of people are going to probably contribute to that. Uh, it's called cloud attacker, uh, uh, from a, a person in Berlin. Um, there are a couple other companies. I'm not going to disclose what their names are, but they're probably companies you've heard of, uh, that, uh, have written their own tools internally to do these things. Um, so there's not a whole lot of tools out there for people to just get started. What people are doing is, um, uh, well, there's about to be a commercial tool that does this. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, but there is not a lot of open source uh, tools uh, beyond people who are writing their own Python scripts. Uh, that's why a lot of people are doing writing Python and Bash to inject the failures. A lot of the use cases are naturally the cloud uh, and container security type of experiments. That's where people, a lot of people are utilizing uh, chaos engineering and those sort of uh, transitions to those technologies. Um, I guess that's, that's what makes it hard um, is I wish I had more time between, <laughs> between running a startup and, and, and the book. We also just finished a new animal book on chaos engineering. It just came out last month. Uh, there's a full chapter on security chaos engineering in there. Uh, I'll give you, uh, what's a link it called? To, uh, it's called chaos engineering system resiliency and practice. From O'Reilly. Uh, O'Reilly book. O'Reilly. Book. O'Reilly. It, it's the we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's yeah, got some sort of monkey on the front, which is appropriate. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. It looks like a raccoon one. Yeah, like uh, marmot, or I don't know. Uh, I don't. I'm not, I don't know what that, I don't know what that's called. Uh, but, um, but anyway, no. There's a. Well, that, that's another thing that was hard is that all you had was a series of blog posts from me of a few other people. Um, you had uh, people doing talks. You had the Netflix ninety pager chaos engineering book. Now there's a body of knowledge, right? Where people like inside of this book, there is there are. Books from uh, there's two cases from different companies. Uh, there, uh, I, I have in my chapter. I've got sort of a how-to of chaos engineering for security, sort of the use cases, how it's different than red teaming and purple teaming, breach and attack simulation, um, and but this also is the sort of the the premise that uh, launched the full book. So uh, the full book on security chaos engineering, uh, which will have a variety of. Uh, different companies that are writing about their stories, uh, how they've applied it, the tools they built. Um. Obviously, a lot to learn, a lot to, to to unpack. And so, listeners, we'd love to hear if you've been trying to take on some of these experiments. You know, you can find us on the Twitters. You can find Aaron on the Twitters. We're all on the Twitters. Um, but this has been, I don't know, I, I've learned a bunch. Uh, I thought it was a pretty great conversation. So, Remember, and so if you go to restedevops.com slash chaos security, you'll get the show notes of this episode. We've got links to uh, to some of the tools that Aaron's talked about, to the, to the books and all that fun, good stuff. Uh, if you go to restedevops.com slash iTunes, if you leave us a review in the iTunes store, in theory, this helps people find the show, I guess, or something. I don't know. Uh, you, can, you can find us on Spotify and iHeartRadio if you're into those kinds of things. Apparently, we are too. So... Aaron, thank you for for taking the time with us today. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, where can people find you? Uh, uh, my email is at Aaron, A-A-R-O-A-A-R-O-N, at Verica, V-E-R-I-C-A dot I-O, and Twitter. Twitter, Twitter is the best. Uh, at A-A-R-O-N, R-I-N-E-H-A-R-T. Oh, and I want to put one plug out there. There is a link. I'm going to give you guys a link to a chance to win a free book. A free uh, printed copy of the Riley book if folks want that. Um, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Cool. Go to restedevops.com slash chaos security and you can enter to win the book and not have to remember how to spell Aaron's Twitter name too. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's helpful. Uh, yeah, as and as always, I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. <laughs> I'm Jessica at Jessatron. And I'm Aaron Reinhardt in the banana stand. Yes! <laughs> With all the DevOps! With all the DevOps in their bananas. <laughs> <laughs>